Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk about dividends, to their role in the total return of a portfolio, to how they've come down over time, to the trend of companies returning capital to shareholders via buybacks versus dividends, and why investors may be better off by looking beyond just dividends to things like shareholder yield or other value factors in an effort to deliver better long-term returns. We also discuss the concept of a synthetic dividend or selling part of the portfolio off for income and how that may be superior in some ways versus income from dividends solely themselves. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion around dividends and high-yielding stocks. All right, today we're going to talk about, I think, a subject that a lot of investors uh, pay a lot of attention to and care a lot about, and that's um, buying and investing in high dividend paying stocks. Um, this is something we, I wrote an article this week. It's something we've sort of been talking about, and um, we get a lot of questions from investors around high dividend paying strategies, income producing, equity income producing strategies. So, um, just to kind of maybe, I guess, set the stage a little bit is dividends um, over time have contributed about one half, a little less than one half of the total return uh, stocks have delivered historically. So if you look at the return of something like the S&P 500, which is about 10%, you know, dividends over, over the last 100 years have contributed about four and a half percent of that um, return. Um, the dividends were much higher um, 50 years ago, like in the 50s and 60s. And before that, you know, you, you had dividends of four or five, six percent or maybe even higher, depending on the valuation in the market. But really, since the, the 80s, dividends have been in a long term decline. That's one of the things I talked about in my article. When I was looking at dividends and buybacks and things like that. But at least right now, the yield on the S&P 500 is around 1.6, 1.7%. Um, a lot of investors sort of compare the yield of something like the S&P 500 to, say, um, the 10-year treasury. So right now, the 10 years at around 1%, the S&P 500 is yielding about 1.7%. So a lot of long-term investors sort of say, well, if I can get if I can get, you know, 1.7% out of stocks and I have the upside of growth, which you really don't have necessarily in bonds, um, then sort of stocks look better even at potentially those lower yielding um, dividend yields. So, you know, but, but I think one of the things that we want to talk about today was sort of that maybe investors might be putting a little bit too much emphasis on looking only at dividends and maybe they should be sort of considering um, other things and sort of some of the long-term data behind what those other things might be and those other investment factors. So maybe with that, Jack, I'll, I'll kick it over to you and let you build off that. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want us to seem overly negative on dividends because dividends are a good thing. I mean, dividends are obviously a way for companies to return capital to shareholders. But I think investors tend to maybe favor dividend strategies more than they should given the facts. And, and I think that's the problem. You know, we, when we have clients call us, 
one of the most common requests we get is, you know, build me a high yielding strategy, you know, even to the point that recently, I think we had someone call us and say, you know, I want, I need a six to 8% yielding strategy right now. And, you know, right now with the risk-free rate at 0% and the 10 year at 1%, you're not going to build a six to 8% yielding strategy without taking a lot of risk. And so investors tend to say, I want these dividends. I want this high yield so much that sometimes they may or may even be willing to take more risk than they should just to have dividends. And so I think the first thing you want to do is take a step back and say, why do investors want dividends? What are the benefits of dividends? And one obviously is it puts income in your portfolio. You know, if you want to, if you're withdrawing money from your portfolio and you don't want to sell your stocks, well, dividends put that income in your portfolio and you can withdraw that money. And we'll talk about that a little bit later and maybe some other ways you can do that. And, and the second thing is this belief that dividend stocks outperform the market over time by buying, you know, quality companies that are paying high dividends, I beat the market. And, and I think that's, you'll talk about the data in a second, but I, th I think that's true. I think high quality, you know, dividend companies do beat the market, but the reason they do may not be what you think. And so I think there's two different ways to look at why dividend stocks beat the market over time. One is just, if you just take a strategy that gets the highest yielding stocks, what you find is what you're getting there really is an exposure to the value factor because the, the yield is just the price compared to the dividend, just like, you know, the PE ratio is the price compared to earnings or the price to cash flow is the price compared to cash flow. So you have a fundamental compared to the price. And so what happens is when a stock gets cheaper, its yield goes up. So you're getting a lot of exposure to the value factor. The problem is, if you look at historical testing, there are better ways to get exposure to the value factor. There are other value factors that produce better long-term returns than the yield. And so if, if really what you're getting is exposure to the value factor, there may be a better way to do that. And another way, before I let you comment, because I know you have some of the O'Shaughnessy data here, um, another way to look at it is a lot of people like to follow this dividend aristocrat strategy. So I'm, I'm buying companies that have grown their dividends for 20 straight years. But when you look under the hood of that, what you really are getting is exposure to the quality factor. So you're getting high quality companies. You know, one of the one of the quality metrics that's most commonly used is consistency in something, whether it's consistency or sales or consistency in earnings. So when you're getting consistent dividend payers, what you're really getting is exposure to the quality factor. So it's not that dividend stocks are bad. It's just that there may be better ways to accomplish the same thing that you're trying to accomplish with dividend paying stocks. Yeah, maybe before I cite the O'Shaughnessy data, you know, one of the things is a lot of times those companies that actually are paying very high dividends, there's not quality there. They're, they're, the yield is high because there's some, you know, potential black cloud or big problem associated with the company. So, you know, you're sort of, you're talking about high quality dividend paying companies. Well, a lot of them pay yields that are maybe a little bit above the market average, but they're nowhere near sort of some of those high juicy yields that a lot of investors are seeking. So as an investor, when you see a very high yield, something like eight, 10, maybe 12%, you're usually that's a sign that there's some type of problem or issue with the company. Right. Usually, usually those yields are not sustainable. So, you know, there's different types, just like there's different types of any stocks, there's different types of dividend stocks. You know, you've got your high quality companies that pay lower yields and trade at higher valuations. And then, like you said, you've got these, you know, especially after the coronavirus, you had some of these companies paying, you know, 10 to 12% yields, but you have to be careful after crises because a lot of times those dividends aren't safe. And so a lot of times that company paying a 10% yield, that's the yield they paid in the past. A lot of times that yield is not going to continue in the future. And so you have to be careful, you know, like you said, investors want to hunt these yields that are really high, but you have to be really careful about, is that company going to continue to pay the dividend? And also, are there so many problems with the company that I might get the dividend, but I'm going to lose tons of money in the stock price. And, you know, so net net, I'm going to be behind. So I think those are both things you want to keep in mind. Yeah. So in O'Shaughnessy's book, What Works on Wall Street, which we reference a lot here in the podcast, 
he tested um, the returns of the highest decile dividend-paying stocks from 1927 to 2009. And what he found over that period was that the top decile of high dividend-paying stocks returned a annualized return of 11.7% versus 10.4% for the all-stock universe. So you had about 1.3 percentage points of outperformance over the broader market in high dividend-paying stocks. Um, but what he also found there and what the data shows, and it's kind of to this point, is that um, those high dividend-paying stocks actually did exhibit more risk in terms of like max drawdown and things like that than the all-stock universe. And it, and it kind of makes sense because that highest decile stocks are the ones to some extent that have some of these problems. Some of the companies obviously make it and those probably end up being good performers, but the ones that don't obviously drag down returns. So um, that's sort of the, the long-term historical performance on high dividend paying stocks. It does outperform the market. Um, and 1.3% compounded over you know that amount of time is actually a significant amount of money, um, but it's not the best, and we'll kind of talk about this in a few minutes, it's not, it's not the best factor or value factor that you'd want to look at um, in terms of you know generating outperformance. Just a few other sort of interesting sort of pieces in that dividend chapter. Um, O'Shaughnessy kind of uh, ends these with some case studies or other interesting pieces of, of research that they've conducted. And what he found was that companies that actually cut their dividend between zero and 50%, they actually had slight underperformance in the following year following the cut. However, companies that actually completely eliminated their dividend and retired it, you know, had as much as on average, actually 3.6 percentage points of underperformance um, in the 12 months following the cut. So, so basically, if you know, if you're invested in a company and it completely cuts its dividend, that's usually not, usually those companies go on to underperform over the next um, 12 months. The other thing that they he highlighted here, and it kind of goes to the, the point we were talking about before about quality, you know, he's like, if you're going to use dividends as your sole criteria, you want to make sure you're sticking with what he would call market leaders, you know, high quality companies with strong balance sheets and that have a consistent history of paying a dividend. So that's sort of what he recommends is that if you're going to just use dividends solely, you want to make sure you're staying in the, in the top quality companies that you know the dividends, you know, mostly, mostly safe. Um, pivoting to just uh, other factors or other things that dividend can be combined with, Jack, um, I know we wanted to sort of get into sort of shareholder yield and sort of define what that is, and, and then we can talk about the performance of that and stuff. Yeah, going back to what we talked about earlier, why do people buy dividend stocks? They want income, and then they also you know, want to invest in companies that are returning capital to shareholders. And so it's important to consider, though, that dividends are not the only way you can return capital to shareholders. Another way is stock buybacks. And you know, as, as you referenced earlier in the podcast, you know, the, the dividend yield, the number of companies paying dividends is a lot less than it used to be. And you've got a lot more companies using this method of buybacks to, pay, you know, to return capital to shareholders. And you know, we won't get into all the details here, but behind the scenes, there's really, from the perspective of the investor, other than the taxation of it, there, there really is not much of a difference between a dividend and a buyback. They're both just ways a company can return capital to shareholders. Now, buybacks can be used sometimes for more nefarious purposes, like companies you know, issuing stock options to their executives and then using the buybacks to wash, it, wash that out. So there's, there's a tendency maybe for some companies to use buybacks for bad things, but for the most part, stocks that are, companies that are buying back their stock do very well. And, and when you, and you can talk about the O'Shaughnessy data in a second, but when you combine those two things together, when you combine the dividend yield 
with the buyback yield, you actually get companies that are returning money to their shareholders, but you get more outperformance, you get more excess return over time than just relying on dividends. And you also get that in a more tax efficient way because less of it is you know, a dividend, which is maybe a little bit less tax efficient than buying back the stock. Yeah, and remember dividends are you know, double tax. So a company has to pay tax as the income comes down to the bottom line. And then once the company decides to distribute the dividend, the investor, if it's a taxable account, um, needs to pay tax on that as well. And that's one reason why, you know, Berkshire Hathaway basically doesn't pay a dividend. Buffett would rather, uh, you know, allocate that capital in assets that are productive um, rather than distribute a dividend um, to shareholders and, you know, have them be basically taxed on that as as being income. Now, Berkshire has a lot of cash on the balance sheet. It's not to say it won't ever pay a dividend, but it's just, you know, that's historically been Buffett's view on that. Um, in terms of shareholder yield, which we, did we talk about what goes into shareholder yield? Well, yeah, and it, um, we sort of did, but it, it depends on who does it. Um, technically, shareholder yield is dividend yield plus buyback yield plus debt paydown yield. So all the different ways you know, the companies can return cash to shareholders, you add all of those up. Sometimes people will just use the first two. So sometimes they'll just use dividends and they'll just use buybacks and they won't use the debt pay down. You, you see it both ways. Technically that first, that second one is not shareholder yield. Shareholder yield is all three, but you, you'll see it done both ways. Yeah, I believe O'Shaughnessy in his book, he just used the dividend yield plus the buyback yield. So in his test, which again goes back to 1927 through 2009, he found that the highest decile shareholder yield stocks returned 13.2% versus 10.4% for the um, all stock universe. So you almost have, you know, three percentage points about performance over the market and you have, you know, maybe uh, half a percent or so above the return of the high dividend paying stock decile. So at least in O'Shaughnessy's testing, you know, um, that shareholder yield factor is a better a better sort of way to get at yield. And, but like you said before, it's really uncovering the value factor or giving you exposure to the value factor. Um, That's right. And what's also interesting to note is that in, when O'Shaughnessy did his VC2 composite, which is his value composite uh, in what works on Wall Street, he included shareholder yield in there. So with all the other standard value factors, you know, dividend yield is not in there, but he did include shareholder yield in there. Yeah, I think that helps with the risk-adjusted returns on the overall VC2 um, risk and return stats. So one thing I know, kind of just in, in uh, concluding here, one thing I know we wanted to talk about was this idea of a synthetic dividend and sort of how investors you know, may be able to utilize what is effectively a synthetic dividend to actually generate income. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so if, if you look at the main reason people want dividends, they typically are withdrawing money from their portfolios and they need something to fund those withdrawals. And so they feel like, well, I don't want to sell my stocks. So if I have this dividend coming in, I can just use that to fund my withdrawals and I can pay my expenses. But what people don't understand is there, there's an easy way to create a dividend on your own where you don't necessarily need the companies you own to be paying dividends. And that, that's what a synthetic dividend is. And all a synthetic dividend is, is you sell a certain portion of your portfolio every month or whenever you need the money. Um, in the same way you would you know, have a dividend, if I need 4% out of my account, you might be looking for stocks paying 4%. You can just sell you know, one twelfth of that or whatever it is every month. You can use that to generate your income. And then you, you don't need to necessarily focus solely on dividend paying stocks. It gives you a bigger investable universe of stocks you can 
choose from and a bigger you know, universe of strategies you can use. Um, there, there's sort of two different ways to look at the synthetic dividend, because obviously just like dividends are taxed, capital gains are taxed too. So when, when you're selling these stocks, you have, you have the potential to create a capital gains event. So the first is, is inside non-taxable accounts. It's really a non-issue either way. And many people who are taking these regular withdrawals are in IRAs. They're using non-taxable accounts. And in that case, dividends aren't taxed. The gains from selling aren't taxed. You don't really have to worry about it. They're, they're really the same thing. Then when you get in taxable accounts, you have to be a little bit more careful because if, if you're taking qualified dividends in your account, well, you're getting favorable tax treatment. Well, if you go and start selling you know, short-term gaining positions, then you're getting unfavorable tax treatment. So it's important that whoever is doing this strategy for you, that you do it in a smart way and you try to emphasize when you can try to sell losing positions, which actually makes the, this strategy better from a tax perspective than a dividend strategy, or at least try to sell long-term gaining positions, which makes it comparable, and try not to sell the short-term gaining positions, which makes it inferior. But the, the point is you can achieve the same thing you're trying to achieve by having dividend income in your portfolio by just having regular sales of the stocks in your portfolio to generate the income you need. Yeah, I think that's, that's, those are great points. Um, you know, that would require, I think, more touches to the portfolio. Obviously, you're just not sitting there getting you know, this income stream. You have to go in and actually make these decisions. So for some investors that could, you know, be a failure point. But I think what we've tried to present here is that, you know, looking solely at dividends probably isn't the best strategy. There's other ways you can enhance, I think, a high dividend, high income equity type of strategy using some of the things we've talked about. And I think this idea of synthetic dividends is, is very interesting. And um, that might be optimal for some investors. Yeah, and I do think, by the way, I do think some brokers allow you to automate this process. So I, like my dad, for instance, manages his retirement through Fidelity, and I believe he has an automatic sale that goes on every month that automatically, you know, according to the rules you set, can automatically sell a portion of your portfolio and generate the money for your withdrawals. So I think you can do this in an automated way because, like you said, you know, more, more touches and having to remember doing it, you know, if you have to do that, it's probably not going to work. But I, I think you can automate it in some places. We'll put a, a link to the article that I wrote earlier in the week, which has some of the data on buybacks and dividends and some other, um, I think, interesting things in there. And um, we hope you guys enjoyed this discussion on dividends and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.